Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sophia Rose Arjuna, visiting assistant professor of Islamic Studies at Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado, about her fascinating new book, Muslims in the Western Imagination, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. In the book, Professor Arjuna explores a variety of creative productions, including art, literature, and film, in order to tell a story not about how Muslims construct their own identities, but rather about how Western thinkers have constructed ideas about Muslims and monsters. To what extent are these imaginary constructs real? Is it possible for one's imagination to create things that are more telling than what is actually real? Arjuna's monograph is compelling in part because of the plethora of examples she offers, from a range of cultures and time periods, to help us understand just how deeply stereotypes and fears run in the very fabric of Western imaginations. She demonstrates, in fact, that it's not just Muslims who are portrayed in troubling ways, but also characters that seem foreign to any extent. Dracula, for example, pushes boundaries between Muslim and Jewish and is also not quite human. In this way, Arjuna draws important parallels between the historically contingent categories of anti-Semitism on the one hand and Islamophobia on the other. She also draws on films such as Star Wars and 300, while noting that not all Orientalist imagery is necessarily offensive, even if some of it clearly is for many people. Whether the book ultimately conveys a sense of despair or optimism about the current state of cultural affairs will likely vary from reader to reader. It does remain clear, however, that Arjuna meticulously and artfully portrays a long continuum of how certain types of people have seen themselves as civilized and human, precisely in relation to an inhuman or even post-human contrast that fits somewhere in the category of Muslim monsters. Given the wide range of popular cultural icons that Arjuna explores in her carefully written, rich, and provocative monograph, it should appeal at once to fields such as literature, gender studies, art history, religious studies, and political science. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Sophia Rose Arjuna. Good morning, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining us today here on New Books in Islamic Studies. And I was wondering, before we get going, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and how you got interested in this book project? 
Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and thank you for having me, Elliot. Um, so my educational background, I have a bachelor's degree in Pacific Island Studies, which is basically an anthropology degree. Um, and then my first master's is in art history and archaeology from Columbia University. And then my second master's is in theology and ethics from, from Emory, um, which I did at Candler School of Theology. And then I have a PhD in religion through the joint program um, that's between University of Denver and Iliff School of Theology. And I'm currently visiting a faculty at Iliff in my fourth year there as the um, as a resident scholar of Islam. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that kind of got me actually interested in this project um, were the uh, were the crimes that were revealed um, happening at uh, black sites and also at Abu Ghraib um, against uh, Muslim bodies. And so I was, you know, very interested in, you know, why um, people thought it was okay to do these things, right? Um, and I'd been interested in uh, Edward Said's book um, and his work for years, but I kind of felt like there was a lot on, you know, the representations of Muslim women. Um, and I was, you know, really more interested in doing something on on representations of Muslim men and, and really how, not just those representations, but how that how the history of that discourse impacts um, impacts the bodies, right? So impacts the way that Muslim male bodies are treated um, and the way they're disciplined and the way they're punished. So obviously, you know, influenced by Foucault as well. So one thing that sticks out in your book and in your language just now is this terminology of crime. And so what... What is what does it say about your work that you're using that particular word to describe the kinds of things that you're looking at? Is that significant? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I mean, what, one of the things that I try to do in my book is, you know, through most of my book, you know, all the chapters except the last chapter. I mean, the first chapter is kind of this theory chapter, right? But through the, the whole middle of the book up until the last chapter, I kind of give this genealogy of imaginary Muslim monsters and, you know, for the most part, male monsters. Um, and then in the last chapter, I talk about how uh, this, I believe, you know, I argue that the, 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 the collective kind of magnitude of this discourse impacts the way that Muslim bodies are treated. And, you know, clearly that it is criminal the way that um, Muslim male bodies are treated. Um, and, you know, I give specific examples and I kind of focus on, um, you know, the military treatment of those bodies. Right. But there's a lot of other other ways you could talk about that. Right. With the disciplining of of Muslim bodies in Europe and restrictions on dress code and restrictions on, you know, all kinds of um, movements. Right. So, yeah, I do look at it in terms of uh, in terms of criminality and, you know, um, and I do think that certainly the way that Muslim bodies um, have been uh, brutalized certainly uh, rises to criminal behavior. Yeah. And, and so even in the very title of your book, we get this idea that, OK, this this isn't good. Right. And so and pretty much anyone who studies Islam on a professional level has some sense, oftentimes a strong sense, right, that. This, there's there's problems going on when it comes to stereotypes and 
quote-unquote, Western perceptions of Muslims. And so from your perspective, as you reflect on your project, so, like, how bad is it? Like- well, I, mean, I think it's pretty bad. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was interested in is, you know, I feel, I, you know, I mean, I know that there's a lot of work, right, on these Orientalist images of both Muslim women and men. And, you know, some of these images are, you know, quite romantic, right? And so we have this whole genre of, you know, what's called romantic Orientalism, and you kind of have these, you know, striking Arab men, right, in the desert, and they're these romantic figures or whatever. And so there's quite a bit of that work. But, you know, what I was really interested in looking at was the, was, you know, the whole history of anti-Muslim rhetoric through one type of character, right? Um, Or one, um, you know, you know, one set of characters that had common characteristics. And the reason I was interested in that was because I suspected that, um, that, you know, there was, there was, you know, a collective, uh, genealogy of, um, of this type of character that contributed to the way that, um, Muslims are viewed today. So I don't make the argument in my book that, um, you know, the Kunocephalus, who's this dog-headed man in the Middle Ages, is somehow the same as the kind of stereotype of the, you know, Muslim terrorist, right? But that there's this just this huge collective, you know, um, pejorative, uh, you know, imagery about Muslims and, you know, in particular Muslim men. And, you know, the majority of the images and representations are bad and that they contribute to the way that Muslims are viewed. Now, I think that, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to look at imaginary, (laughs) um, you know, imaginary creatures, right, was because it would just be impossible, right, to do any kind of historical study that was broad and look at, you know, real human beings that were Muslims that lived. So in my book, you know, I have a few examples of images of Salahuddin, who's known as Saladin in the West. Um, But for the most part, what I'm looking at are these imaginary creatures, right? Um, And these are creatures that are, you know, um, live in the imagination and, you know, don't actually live in real life. And, you know, I think that's important because even though they're imaginary, they have, they still have and continue to have a huge impact on the way that people in the West think about Muslims who are actually real people. Mm-hmm. And so this, this idea of the imagination plays several roles. And one way, right, is that when you're talking about Muslims in the book and in the title, you're also talking about more than Muslims and how we can conflate categories like Arab and foreign and non-white and even Jews and this type of thing. So could you say a little bit about the different layers that this term Muslim might have in the context of your book? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, one of the things that was kind of a surprise to me when I was starting to do this research uh, several years ago was when I started to look at the at these medieval Muslim monsters, um, it became clear to me, and I mean, a lot of this work had been done by really, really great medievalists like John Tolan, right, and um, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who have done a lot of work on medieval, um, you know, the way that um, the way that Muslims were looked at in the Middle Ages. And so 
one of the things that became clear to me is that the way that Muslim bodies were constructed um, was in a conversation or was kind of in a relationship with the way that Jewish bodies and African bodies were constructed. And so with some of these medieval monsters, um, medieval Muslim monsters, you have you have monsters that are identified as um, as Jewish and Muslim. So you actually have, you know, examples of um, Sarazins or Cis, um, you know, medieval Muslims that are actually identified as Jewish, right? Um, and, you know, and also African. So one of the main monsters that kind of has all these um, three identities is the black Saracen or Sarazen. And, and this is a, this is, this is a creature that um, has, you know, black skin, um, has often signs of the devil, um, um, wears a turban, but is also identified as Jewish and is usually shown either harassing or executing um, a Christian, either Jesus or a Christian saint, right? And so from the beginning, you kind of have this this uh, this issue with Islam that it's from the very beginning, you know, a raced category, right? That <laughs> it's connected to kind of non, uh, you know, uh, non-Christianity, non-whiteness. And of course, in the Middle Ages, you don't have the same concept of race, right, that you do in modernity. But you do have these kinds of um, ideas about identity that are situated in things like, you know, processes like ethnogenesis, where you're from. And so there's a lot of anxiety among Western Christians about this. And you see how this is expressed in these characters, these monsters. Now, moving forward um, through time, you know, we, we have actually quite a few of these, uh, uh, you know, these hybrid kind of Jewish Muslim characters. And, you know, um, you know, once you get into the modern period, there's there's fewer of them, but probably the the kind of most interesting one that's that's known to people is um, the creature in Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? And and um, this is a monster that's identified in the text as many things. And one of the things that the monster in Dracula is identified as is Jewish. And this is a very anti-Semitic character. Um, and there's all this language in the text about how the monster, you know, smells and the monster hoards gold and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and his appearance with his pallid skin is actually, uh, you know, situated in anti-Semitic texts about Jews. Um, and male uh, Jews were often accused of having, um, of suffering from male menstruation and having uh, pallid, pale skin, right? And then there's other places in the text, in Bram Stoker's text, that identify Dracula as Turkish, right, or Ottoman or Muslim. And, of course, he has this harem, right, which is one of the, one of the, arguments for him being Muslim. So, you know, we have kind of this cohabitation of these different, uh, these different identities and a lot of these, uh, a lot of these Muslim monsters. And so you, you mentioned this term anti-Semitism, and you also use the term Islamophobia in the book, which is obviously right. a new term. And then you make the point too, which I think is important that right categories of race several hundred years ago aren't the same as they are today so right. how, how do you think how does this term islamophobia fit into your research well yeah i mean i you know i think islamophobia is a contemporary kind of 
you know, thing, right? And, um, you know, I think that what my book is about is about the history of anti-Muslim rhetoric, right? Um, Now, there's some scholars who would just probably say, oh, okay, well, this is just a history of Islamophobia. But I really think of Islamophobia as something that's very much situated in, you know, the 21st century, really, right? Um, And I think that anti-Muslim rhetoric certainly contributes to Islamophobia, but it's not, you know, quite the same, right? I mean, anti-Muslim rhetoric is, is something that has a very long history, right? That's, you know, over a thousand years. And I think most scholars, you know, the way that most scholars, um, you know, at least from my reading, uh, you know, uh, describe or define Islamophobia is, is as an aversion or anxiety about Islam and Muslim bodies. So, I mean, in some ways, I guess you could, you know, you could apply that, um, you know, historically, but I think it, it, I think it's much more complicated than that, if it makes sense, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and then I think that, you know, there, I, I mean, I know that scholars that have worked on the history of anti-Semitism have often, you know, have also made these distinctions between the history of anti-Judaism, right, and you know, kind of more recent anti-Semitism. So, you know, I mean, those distinctions are, you know, probably pretty important. And I try to make those in my book. So I'm not just kind of, um, you know, applying this language, this language everywhere. Sure. And it's clear, obviously, that you're looking at different contexts with different concerns, different time periods you look at. So, yeah, I think think it's very clear in the book that you're, you're careful to these types of technical terms. And there's another technical term, Orientalism, which is obviously a very important word in your book, and you've also you've al- you've already referenced Edward Said. So, could you say a little something about what Orientalism means in the context of your book and how Edward Said has helped you conceptualize your project? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, Orientalism is often um, scholars often talk about Orientalism kind of beginning with Napoleon's invasion right, of Egypt in 1798. Um, but uh, and Orientalism is defined in different ways. Even Edward Said kind of defines it in different ways in his 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 great book, right? So um, you know, generally it's described or defined as the idea the ideology and discourse that created the East and the imaginary Muslim. It's the ideology that you know creates this kind of binary system, right? The East, the West, um, the Muslim, the Christian, um, you know, all these binaries um, that are enforced. And, you know, it's something that obviously it doesn't come until much later in the, in the history that I'm looking at, but it sustain the, the important part of it, I think for my work is that it sustains anti-Muslim rhetoric, right? So it is the it is the discourse that helps to sustain it and kind of validate it. Um, and in terms of you know Edward Said, I mean, I first read his book years ago and totally changed my outlook on right everything. And this was even before I was really in grad school um, for for a doctorate. Um, and you know, there's a couple things that he said that always stuck with me one uh, there was there was like three that that you know i think are influential in terms of this book so one of them is that in an interview this is actually i don't think in orientalism but it was in an interview in a documentary film he comments on how the east is looked as a place of monsters right and he never really 
you know, this is that wasn't really a concern of his because he was really more interested in kind of political discourse and colonialism and imperialism and those types of issues, right? Another thing that he talked about was um, was how the Muslim male was looked at as this kind of hypersexualized, hyperaggressive character. Right. And he talks about that quite a bit in his work. And then another thing he 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 talks about a little bit, mentions a few places in Orientalism in his text is this this the secret shared history of anti-Semitism and Orientalism. And um, there's, you know, a number of scholars who've done a, done some work on this. And one of the things he was pointing to was an Orientalism we have a lot of anti-Semitic discourse, right? Um, and Orientalism is used to, you know, to substantiate anti-Semitism. And there's these ideas about the, the Semite, right? The Arab or the Jew. And um, a lot of these ideas relate to environmental determ- determinism and co- the kind of cognitive mapping part of Orientalism, which is like, because these people live in the desert, they have these characters, right? They're very passionate and kind of irrational, right? And all this stuff. And one of the other places that it comes up is in the Orientalist writings on the um, Muslim women and on Oriental, the Oriental Jewess, right? And you kind of see the same kind of character. So those are kind of the three things that really influenced me from, um, you know, from his work, you know, specifically, and then more generally just his, you know, his reliance on Foucault and also his interrogation of discourse were also very influential on, on my work. Uh huh. And so you mentioned in particular the role that gender plays in Orientalism. And one of the things Syed argues is that it's like this fetishization of the exotic East and has all these sorts of feminine qualities to it. But in your book, you're focusing mostly on males. And so could you say something about how gender plays out in your book that way? And if there's sure. any kind of paradox going on? Yeah. I mean, so like one of the things I think that my book hopefully helps with is that, you know, there's been a huge number of studies done on Orientalism and the Muslim woman, right? And the, you know, Muslim women, you know, for the most part are kind of viewed as these downtrodden, oppressed characters, you know, right. They have no agency and, and, you know, that works in the system of Orientalism because the Muslim man is like this horrible kind of character that oppresses her and rapes her and kills her half the time and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So if you read, you know, um, Orientalist fiction, for example, there's a lot of these stories of kind of the Sultan, you know, killing whatever the concubine because she does whatever. Right. And so there is this kind of, there's this establishment of this relationship um, in Orientalism between, you know, Muslim women who are, you know, oppressed and the Muslim man who's the oppressor. And of course, that's really convenient because then the white hero from the West, right, has to come in and rescue her. And, you know, I mean, this is very much the same discourse that we have about, for example, um, the American Indian, right? You have all these rescue narratives, right, in early American literature about this. And my colleague Tink Tinker, who I work with at ILIF, has, you know, um, talks about a lot of this in, in his classes. So, you know, there's very much almost this kind of, um, 
you know, codependent dysfunctional relationships set up, right, in Orientalism between Muslim men and Muslim women. Now, my book really looks at male Muslim monsters. And there's there's a few um, female characters I mentioned and in a future project, I'll probably go back to these, um, some of these female Muslim monsters because there's a few of them and they're pretty fascinating, right? But part of the, I mean, part of the whole thing with gender is that Muslim men are looked at as, you know, hypersexual and hyperviolent, right? And they, and that is why, you know, the West needs to come in because they have to kind of, you know, protect the rest of the world from these men and, you know, and have to protect the women in the region from these men. Right. And so there's, you know, all kinds of scholarship about this. Right. And so um, this is very much part of Orientalism. Right. This gender piece. Uh huh. And so coming back to this idea of how modern concerns are different than pre-modern concerns, you spend a bit of time looking at pre-modern examples in, in literature to interrogate your, your, your research questions. But before we rewind the clock a little bit, could you say something about how important 9-11 was to writing your book and whether or not that's an exaggerated landmark in the story you're trying to tell or maybe not so much or somewhere in between? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, I mean, what... I mean, 9-11 is important in the sense that, you know, it's this, you know, horrible series of events, right, that happen on this day and um, in 2001, right? Um, and what 9-11 leads to are all these policies and these actions that punish you know, Muslim bodies. And so like in that sense, it's very, you know, it's very influential. There's also just this whole kind of thing about 9-11, right? Um, and Slavo Žižek has done some work on this. And I talk a little bit at, about it um, in my book that 9-11 is kind of the, the, you know, it's kind of like the culmination of all these fears about Muslims come, <laughs> like actually happen, right? Um and so the anxiety about Islam, which has always, you know, it's really been there since the beginning of, you know, this, the founding of the United States. And I have a chapter about that, um, you know, just becomes kind of heightened, right, because of what happens on 9-11. And I mean, one of the problems about, I mean, you know, one of the things that comes out of 9-11 in some ways is a more, um, serious discussion about Islam, but there's also, of course, like a huge rise in Islamophobia, right? That happens because 9-11 and because of there's, you know, a few people that commit these horrible crimes, you have this kind of collective punishment that's put on, you know, you know, every Muslim in the world, basically, right? <laughs> um, so in that, you know, in that way, it's, it's a very significant event. You know, I don't really focus, um, I mean, I have a few places where I mention um, bin Laden and kind of the way that he's talked about, but, you know, because my book is about imaginary monsters and not um, human beings that do atrocious things that we might describe as monsters. And we could have a whole debate about, you know, whether we should describe human beings that are criminals as monsters. Um, I don't really talk, I don't have a huge section on it in my book. Right. But um, I do talk about it. Just I have a short discussion that just kind of deals with the, 
you know, deals with the um, the fallout from 9-11. And one of the fallouts, right, is this punishment of um, Muslim bodies at places like Abu Ghraib and at black sites. Yeah, right. and, and I think it's appropriate, too, that the, the chapter on uh, the monsters of September 11 is at the end of the book. I think what a lot of people are expecting, right, is that somehow after 9-11 there's this dramatic shift in, you know, quote-unquote Western perceptions of Islam, but obviously what you're trying to show in your book, and others are doing this too, is that this actually is a lot deeper than people often realize, and 9-11 is part of a continuum, but not certainly not the beginning. Right. And there's, I mean, I'm sorry, Ellie, I don't want to interrupt. There's one thing that I would add is that, you know, there is this whole production of, you know, of monsters that comes after 9-11 that's, you know, kind of instigated, right, by the anxiety surrounding 9-11. And one of them, I mean, one of the things that happens in, is that, you know, after 9-11, we have a huge proliferation of post-apocalyptic films about, you know, aliens invading and zombie apocalypses and all this kind of stuff, right? And there's some really good work that's been done on this by Kyle William Bishop, um, um, who's looked at, you know, the rise in zombie films since 9-11, right? Um, and then there's other scholars, including the scholar um, um, St. John, who, um, or in St. John, who's looked at uh, the way that um, the discourse about, uh you know, Muslim suicide attackers is very similar to the discourse about zombies, right? So we certainly have this kind of, you know, 9-11 as this moment that certainly um, creates or inspires new Muslim monsters or kind of the proliferation of, uh, of films and other kinds of creative endeavors that have these images from 9-11. And, you know, there's this film by Steven Spielberg makes this remake, right? War of the Worlds. And there's there's, you know, these scenes in the film that are just, you know, lifted right from 9-11, you know, <laughs> um, which, which scholars have already, other scholars have written about, right? And so there's this kind of reliance on the, you know, on the imagery and on the trauma of that events, right, in a lot of film and in a lot of other, um, you know, other cultural expressions, and I think, you know, just using War of the Worlds as an example, one of the fun parts for me about reading through your book was to see just how the examples are almost endless of these types of dots that you can connect. And not even that it's, like, artificial or something, but, like, these are very real connections. But it's so easy to take these things for granted because we're just immersed in this culture of film and literary production that repeats these different patterns. And so on that note... You discuss a lot of creative productions and works of literature from across a, a great span of time. And so, of the different films and books that you look at, what what's like the most memorable for you? Is there something that stands out as just being like a really cool or a weird example of the kinds of issues you're trying to get at? Well, I mean, I think one of the, I mean, I think for me, one of the more, one of the most interesting parts of, of the research for me were these Gothic Muslim monsters that you find in Gothic fiction. And I think one of the most interesting um, characters is Dracula, right? And w one of the things that's interesting about Dracula is that, you know, Dracula is, you know, is a very Gothic monster. And one of the things about Gothic monsters is that they, um, represent a lot of anxieties surrounding the transgression of 
borders and the violation of bodies, right? So one of the things that's interesting about Dracula, as I mentioned earlier in this um, in this talk, was that Dracula is both Jewish and Muslim, right? He has this very kind of hybrid identity. But one of the other interesting things about Dracula is that Dracula crosses boundaries and he does this or it does this rather right because he's this very kind of queer character um in different ways and one of the ways that dracula does this is through the violation of bodies right in the infecting bodies right and so one of the things that that's about is the violation of kind of pure European bloodlines, right? Which was a concern of people like Bram Stoker at the time. And then another way that Dracula does this is by kind of reverse colonization, right? By going going to London, right? Going to Europe and then colonizing these bodies and infecting them through through leaving his territory, right? So, I mean, I think that Dracula is a text is really interesting. Um, another one of the texts that I found really interesting was Batek, which is this, um, which is a, another really interesting monster and really, really a, very much. This is very much a queer text, right? So Batek is a really, um, you know, really violent uh, sultan, and he is uh, he has all these kind of magical powers. Um, and there's all these objects that are attached to him, right, which are magical. And he um, is kind of similar to Dracula is kind of a sexual opportunist. Like he kind of has all kinds of interests in different kinds of partners, right? So it's an, an interesting text um, for that reason. I mean, I think out of the Gothic horror text I looked at, those two were of particular interest. And then in terms of films, I mean, I found that, Francis Ford Coppola's kind of rendition of, of Bram Stoker's text was very actually close to the text. And so when Coppola made the film, he made it very Orientalist, right? And if you look at that film, I mean, it's a kind of strange movie, right? But it's just filled with Orientalist imagery from beginning to end. And so that's a film that's, you know, pretty interesting, um, probably out of most of them I looked at, I found that that film was, you know, the most interesting. And then, you know, 300 is, boy, I mean, 300 has just got a lot going on, right, as we know. <laughs> right? And there's this, there's all this kind of stuff about, um, you know, I mean, the, the uh, 300 isn't really about the ancient world, right? As we know, it's really about the, you know, United States and Iran, basically, right? In the West and the East. But, you know, the, the persons in the film are kind of, put in blackface, right? And they're, they're all monsters, right? So even Xerxes, who's the Persian king, even he's like this, you know, whatever, eight or nine foot tall, <laughs> right? Um, tall, uh, you know, giant, right? And, and then, you know, the, this, per, this uh, there's all these other Persians that are, you know, deformed and then, you know, all they have all these kind of creatures surrounding them that are deformed. And then there's this whole harem scene in 300 where there's all these disfigured lesbians. I mean, it just kind of like there's this whole kind of Orientalist phantasmagoria, right, <laughs> in 300. So that's another film that I would say is pretty interesting to look at. Yeah, and you, you mentioned so many others as well. But one thing I think is going to catch people's eye is you talk about Star Wars a bit. Right. And so, right. so part of the question, too, is 
So, so sometimes when you look at works of literature or film and you analyze it to a certain degree, it can, for lack of a better word, almost like ruin the an entertainment experience, which could right. be good or bad depending right. on the value of entertainment. But so what what types of problematizations do you see with Star Wars and how it fits into the category of monsters and Muslims? Right. So, I mean, Star Wars is kind of mixed bag, right? Because it's, I mean, I think um, Star Wars is a lot more thoughtful about its Orientalism. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, with a, a film like 300, you have this kind of, you know, monstrous Orientalism, right? This just like, there's no redeemable Persian anywhere. They're all kind of gross and horrible, right? Um, And now, you know, in Star Wars, you have a lot of things going on, you know, and I try to kind of touch upon some of those. I mean, some of the Orientalism in the Star Wars films is, you know, is this kind of stylistic, I guess I call it, like stylistic Orientalism. It's like, um, you know, the clothing um, and the landscapes and those kinds of things. And then you, you know, you have this other stuff going on, right? So there's been, um, you know, there's been a bit written about, for example, Jabba the Hutt and kind of, you know, what that character represents. Um, and so I think that there's a lot more thoughtfulness about, um, about these kinds of, um, uh, you know, aesthetic, right, aesthetic uses of the Orient that we ha- that we see in the Star Wars films. And I think, you know, some, maybe some of that comes from George Lucas, who, um, you know, if you I'm sure you've read a bit about him, you know, has, you know, very, very interested in religion, right, and is very interested in numerous religions, right? And so maybe that's why it's a little bit more thoughtful. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, obviously there's a difference between a film that's just kind of got these pejorative you know, I mean, nothing but negative, uh, you know, uh, portrayals of the East, right, and films that are, you know, kind of a mixed bag, you know, and I don't really see the Star Wars films as, um, you know, as particularly like, you know, anti-Islamic, right, or anti-Eastern. It's, you know, a bit more, a bit more complicated. Now, in terms of me kind of enjoying these films, I mean, I, you know, I'm somebody that doesn't particularly like watching the violent films. So um, the the big kind of struggle for me with, you know, analyzing or thinking about a film like 300, it's just that it's so, you know, that it's so violent. But I, I try to, you know, um, I have a, I have a work with a colleague, Jeffrey Mahan, who's a, who's an expert in cinema and religion. And um, I spent a lot of time with him talking about kind of how do we look at film, even film that we have issues with portrayals at. And so he has some really good ideas about it you know, how to do that. And, you know, there's the aesthetic part of the film, right? And the acting and the directing and the sets and the, you know, all that. And then you have, you know, the ideas in the film, right? And those are two very different things, I think. Yeah. So if we could rewind a little bit. So one of your earlier, your middle chapter is on Turkish monsters. And so this category of Turkish was often used synonymously for Arab uh, or or Muslim, and so could you say a little bit about what led you to this particular chapter and some of the highlights that you look at? Sure. So, I mean, what I mean, one of the things that you know is important about the monsters that the monster, you know, monsters are protean, so they they change, right? So, depending on which 
um, social and cultural and historical milieu you're in, they will change, right? So at the time, you know, the Islam kind of comes on the scene, um, you know, there's this anxiety about, right, about, uh, you know, African bodies and Jewish bodies. And of course, that continues for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so you have, you know, kind of the the, the word that's used to describe uh, Muslims is usually Saracen, you know, Sarazen, you know, S-A-R-A-C-E-N. And sometimes in French, I think it's S-A-R-A-Z-Z-I-N or something. And so, you know, you, that's kind of like the, the ethnic identifier, right? Or the term that's used. Now, um, what happens with the Turkish monsters is that Turkish monsters become a thing because Europeans start to become anxious about the Ottoman Empire, Right. So instead of kind of having this portrayals that are more focused on Arab monsters, they kind of, you know, transition into Turkish monsters. Now, you do have some black Turks. Right. But, um, you know, uh, most of these Turkish monsters are, you know, you know, uh, more of what kind of we think of as a Turk, like with, you know, a turban and all this. So, you know, I mean, I look at some of the characters in Shakespearean drama. And then um, there's a couple other, you know, other, uh, you know, characters I look at. Now, one of the kind of interesting things about, you know, about Turkish monsters and about this era um, is that, you know, in the in Renaissance art, you start to see this thing and you start to see this a little bit in what we call the proto-Renaissance, right? Which is kind of the end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the Renaissance. But in Renaissance art, you start to see these Turkish-looking figures appear at things like the crucifixion, as if there were Muslims around at the crucifixion, right? And then you start to see this proliferation of paintings of, um, of you know, Turkish figures, right? Um, with these Turkish style turbans um, at these executions, torture and executions of different Christian saints. So we're like, this is a really interesting kind of um, thing that happens, right? Because the Muslims aren't even around at this time, but there's still an effort to kind of place them there as these enemies of Christendom, right? So in addition to Shakespearean literature and a couple other things, um, there's a lot of signage, especially in, especially in England, especially in Britain. So there's a lot of signs for businesses that have these kind of monstrous Turkish figures on them. And then the thing that you might, um, you know, that I, I think is one of the most interesting uh, things in the chapter is this Turkhead's pie that I talk about. And there's this um, there's this kind of a pie that's that's. Uh, that's created and consumed. And we find this, you know, this is something that comes from France, but we find it, you know, in other European locales and it's a pie that's basically the face of a Turk. And so when the people eat it, it's kind of like a kind of symbolic cannibalism. Right. And um, the way that the pie is, or the pastry is decorated is very much, in this kind of monstrous way. So there's this very monstrous face of a Turk, right? That is, um, that is, uh, that is the appearance of this pastry basically. Right. So there's this whole kind of proliferation of Turkish monsters. And this is very much just as timed with the rise of the Ottoman empire. Do do you think there's anything ironic about sort of how things have turned in the last hundred years and how Ottoman empire falls and then Turkey becomes this, like bastion of secularism, but it it used to be synonymous with Islam. 
Is there is there anything interest significant going on in that turn and like including our our memory and perceptions of what Turkey might represent today? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that you know um, that the way that I mean, I think that Americans, um, you know, and I think Europeans don't quite have this issue as much as Americans because I think a lot of you know Europeans are in closer proximity, right, to, to places like Turkey. I mean, Turkey basically is in Europe, right? Um, so uh, you know, I think that Americans kind of think of places like Turkey in very simplistic ways, right? So it's kind of like, oh, Turkey is the good Muslim country. That's the secular one. And they kind of ignore all the stuff about, you know, human rights abuses and the treatment of the Kurds and kind of all this business. But yeah, I mean, I think it is, you know, it is interesting, um, but it, it very much points to this whole um, issue about, about political enemies, right? That um, once Turkey ceases to kind of become a threat, right, we start to then see these other monsters emerge. So, you know, one, I mean, one of the things that happens, for example, in early American history is that, um, is that, uh, you know, Turkey's kind of like not so much an issue, right? But what the issue is, is um, the Moors, right? Because the people that, you know, the explorers that come to the Americas and colonize the Americas and, um, you know, they're very kind of fixated on the Moors and they rename all these, you know, American Indian or Native American cities after places like Cairo, Right. Right. And so what that kind of demonstrates is that for for a period of time, Turkey is the enemy. And then once it ceases becoming the enemy, then somebody else is vilified. And I mean, you can see this right now with, um, you know, some of the political discourse surrounding Iran, for example. Right. And that, um, you know, there's there's certain ways that. Iranians and the Islamic State of Iran, or Muslim, Islamic Republic of Iran, are talked about, right? Which is in this very kind of, you know, pejorative in a way, simplistic way. Um, and Turkey's not talked about this way, right? Because simply because Turkey isn't a threat, and there there aren't really resources probably that people want from Turkey, right? <laughs> um, and so this, you know, I think proves one of the points in my book, which is that you know that monsters are protean. Right. And so they're very politically convenient and monsters are political. Right. I mean, they are they are political characters. Right. That are constructed um, because of, you know, political issues. Right. And because of things like territory and trade and resources and all that. And that's something that I don't go into great detail in my book. But in the beginning of each chapter, I try to give a little context for why these monsters are, you know, are popular during this um, particular time. Mm-hmm. So building off this idea of how uh, monsters change over time, so do the categories, right? So the Western imagination, how, how has the Western imagination changed over time? And is there anything you mean by that that might surprise re- readers? I mean, I think that, you know, what I mean by, you know, Muslims in the Western imagination is that there's this, you know, the way that, um, the way that people in the West think about Islam isn't, you know, usually connected to reality. It's kind of what I'm saying here. So because there's so many of these images and there's and they're so pejorative and there's such a long history, right, of these imaginary characters. And because, you know, remember that Islam and I mean, you know, this because you're an Islamic scholar, too, right? That Islam is constructed as an idea. 
right? Um, in modernity, right? You know, in Orientalism, we have this construction or invention of this thing called Islam, right? And of this thing called the East and of this kind of character called the Muslim, right? That we still as scholars and, and instructors still, I mean, I'm sure you go into, into classes all the time and you have to kind of spend a lot of the academic term, you know, explaining to people, you know, that there's this many Muslims in the world and this percentage are Arabs and this is the minute percentage that are, you know, committing violence, you know, political violence and all that, right? So, I mean, I think that one of the, one of the things I hope that my book, you know, contributes to is this, you know, is an understanding about the fact that even today we have an idea about Islam that doesn't necessarily correspond to reality. Now that I'm not making the argument that there aren't bad Muslims. There are certainly really bad people (laughs) that commit horrible, violent acts against, you know, other Muslims and against people that aren't Muslim. And I think we all know that, but that's very different than this kind of idea about Islam as this strange kind of scary thing and these ideas about Muslims as, you know, they can't live in modernity and they're always violent and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so that's really what I mean by the imagination is that I really believe that even today we still have a disconnect between, um, you know, the social imagination, right. About Muslims and what the lives of Muslims are really like, you know, I mean, there's this great book, right. Um, that came out last year, I wrote a review on do Muslim women really need saving, right? (laughs) Which is based on this article that the scholar wrote earlier. And I mean, one of the points that she makes is that, you know, when people talk about Muslim women, they, they tend to just kind of think of Muslim women as a character, right? And she talks about how there's this place, I think she calls it like Islam land or Islama land, where there's just kind of this fictive place where Muslims live, right? And we know this as scholars because we spent time in different Muslim communities that the lives of Muslims are just radically different, right? And even the life of a Muslim that lives in North Tehran, right, is different than the life of a Muslim that lives in South Tehran, for example, right? Um, And so, I mean, that's one of the things that the book is trying to say is trying to say that, you know, the imaginary is so powerful that we're having trouble even looking at what the reality is. I mean, there was this great, um, you know, interview on Fox or no, on CNN that Reza Aslan did. And um, I know there's all kinds of debates about, um, you know, about um, certain, certain things about that interview. But one of the things that happens in the interview is he keeps on telling the interviewer, over and over again, that it doesn't work to talk about Muslim women as a category. And he says it over and over again throughout the interview, and they they cannot hear him. And to me, that's really telling, right, that you have somebody that's saying over and over again, the life, you know, the condition of Muslim women in Indonesia is very different than the condition of Muslim women in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And over and over again, they don't hear him, and they just keep on keep on arguing and they keep on saying the same thing. And that's the problem I think is that the imaginary is so powerful that even when people are being told and given examples and statistics, they still can't hear it. Yeah. And so I think this raises really interesting questions about, you know, you're saying when people think about Muslims, it's often not based in reality, but what you're saying is sometimes our imagination is actually like more powerful than reality. So 
that that raises all sorts of uh, strange quandaries. I think so. On on this note, what what would you say is like the main message of your book? When I when I read the last sentence, it made me think about this extra. So you're talking about Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and the different crimes and dehumanizing processes that have gone on there. And then you end by saying in these spaces, the obliteration of Muslim humanity is complete. And so, yeah, what's, what would you say is, is, is the take home? Should, should the reader, should we be hopeful? Should we be filled with utter despair? Something else? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a, I mean, from my perspective, you know, there's probably a combination of hope, despair, and panic, right? (laughs) It's like, it's like, um, you know, clearly there are things and policies um, being enforced um, against Muslims that are, you know, very, very concerning, right? Um, And I think the, the fact that we've gotten to this point where we have, you know, people in indefinite detention, and we have forced feedings, and we have kind of all this stuff going on, you know, is of great concern. And it does, you know, it does, you know, leave me kind of in this, um, you know, in this uh, state of despair, because I feel like the way that Muslim bodies in some spaces are being treated is, is not human, right? And that they are less than human, they're post-human, or they're, you know, um, the dogs, right, at these facilities were treated better than <laughs> than the prisoners, right, or than um, the Muslim bodies. And so, you know, I think that what I hope this book does is to show that, you know, people need to be conscious about, you know, the information they're taking in, they need to be, they need to be aware of this history, and they need to try and fight the impulse to let the imagination take over. Right. Um, and I think that we we see this. Um, I mean, I dedicated this book to Trayvon Martin. Right. And all other victims of an imagination run riot, because I feel like one of the reasons that things like that happen is because um, people are letting their imagination take over. Right. And they're looking at some kid with a hoodie and a backpack and they're thinking without any information, oh, that must be a bad kid. I'm going to go, you know, confront him. Right. Um, And I think it's the same thing with Muslims is that people, you know, tend to go to this kind of place of, oh, the, the, you know, the Muslim man has a beard, you know, he must be a bad guy. Right. Or the Muslim woman's wearing hijab. She must be like really conservative. I bet she doesn't isn't allowed to work, you know, kind of thing. And so that's really the point, I think, you know, is to be aware of this history and to try and, um, you know, use what I've exposed right in this book to, you know, to help us be more aware that the imagination is very powerful and that this discourse is very powerful. And we need to try and, you know, situate our. Um, you know, situate our lives in reality instead of, instead of fantasy and the imagination. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> following up on that, you've already mentioned sort of ways that you think about the, the, the classroom and the kinds of questions students have in classes about Islam. And so as I'm reading the book, I, I'm thinking of all sorts of examples in terms of ways we could analyze literature or film to make this book productive in the classroom and so i'm assuming as the author of the book you've thought about this as well so what what types of uses of book themes or book chapters pre-publication have you have you used in your classes and what have been the results 
Yeah. So I use, I mean, I've used, um, you know, when I was working in the book, I use uh, certain chapters, um, especially in, in classes um, like Introduction to Islam and Islam in the West, um, you know, to talk about some of these issues of representation and Islamophobia and, you know, the history of Christian Muslim relations, right? And, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, I think there's a wide number of, of courses that the book could be used in. I mean, I think the book would be really useful in classes on, you know, Islam in the West and Orientalism. I think it'd be useful for, um, you know, introductory classes on Islam because it shows, right, the history of Christian Muslim relations. I mean, I think it would be interesting to use in classes on, you know, gender in Islam. I think you could use it in classes on, um, you know, if you were teaching a class on religion and cinema, it, you know, you could use the chapter on that, right? Um, and certainly on classes that look at monsters, right? Um, you know, if you were teaching a class on religion and monsters, I think it would be, you know, really useful for that, right? So I think there's a lot of uses for, you know, um, for the text. And when when I, you know, kind of embarked on this project with Oxford, you know, they they made it clear to me that they wanted me to um, you know, to, to write it so that it could be used, you know, by students and scholars, right, in the classroom, but also so it would be accessible to the general public. So I tried to kind of tone down a little of the theoretical language, like, right, with um, Foucault and Bourdieu and people like that to make it so that people, you know, kind of the, the Barnes and Noble crowd, right, could hopefully, um, you know, hopefully get something out of it. Yeah, I think it's it's very clear that it, it should appeal to a wide range of people, and it is accessible, but it also has lots of footnotes and references, and so there's a lot to be gained from the bibliography as well. So we've taken up your time today, Sophia. Before we go, could you tell us a little bit about some current or future product, projects that you're working on, whether they're related to or departures from the monograph? Sure, sure. So I have, um, I have a three book chapters coming out this year. Um, I have one on Jewish and liberation theology, uh, Jewish and Islamic liberation theology. Then I have one on female and queer imams in a, in a North America. That's in a volume on post-colonial liturgy. Um, and then I have another piece that's coming out on Ali Shariati and Islamism. Uh, and then I was just asked to co-author a book on Muslim female superheroes and comics, graphic novels and cartoons. So I'm kind of, uh, taking a little break for a couple of weeks and then I'm going to start, start on that. And then, um, there's two projects which I'm looking at for kind of my next book. And one of them has to do with, has to actually do with Muslim female bodies and how, um, you know, how they're, you know, perceived and treated. Um, and this is kind of, you know, the, in a way, kind of like the follow-up to this book, it, it wouldn't really be on Muslim female um, monsters, right? But there might be a, like a little bit of a history there. And I'm, you know, interested in the way that Muslim bodies generally, um, you know, are thought of as kind of interruptions to modernity and to whiteness, right? And we, we see this a little bit, like, for example, with the, you know, with the um, campaign to ban minarets in Switzerland, right? And with the posters, and they had these, uh, you know, the kind of pristine countryside, and then they had these, you know, women with niqab, like interrupting the countryside and wrecking it, right, with their Islamness, right? Um, and so I'm kind of interested in that idea. And then the, the other kind of main thing that I do, or that I've written about, 
about um, is pilgrimage. And so I've written some, um, I published a couple of pieces on uh, pilgrimage architecture in the Shia tradition. And so I've been working on this um this project for a while, that I'm, which may be my next book, if it's not this this other thing, um, which is about pilgrimage items that are that are uh, that are obtained during pilgrimage and then used ritually to reconnect the person, um, the pilgrim, back to the site or to the saint or to the person that's um, you know that's interred at the site. And so that's kind of the other the other possibility, and it just kind of depends on. Um, you know, which direction I go to which, which thing I do next, but I, I'm definitely committed to co-authoring this book. Um, so that, that will be definitely the next project. Well, could I ask you one, one last thing since sure. I, I, I see a connection on a different spectrum. So you're talking about Muslim superheroes. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's a clear connection between superheroes and monsters. At least they're both beyond human in a certain way. Is that right. is that something you're, you're thinking about, or am I am I off and making no, this connection? No, I, mean, I, right. I think that's right, Elliot. And you know, I think I mean one of the other things that I'm 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 interested in is I'm interested in you know agency. So I mean, one of the things that interests me about this project about these female Muslim characters is that Muslim women are generally viewed as, you know, people that have no agency, right? And they're just kind of oppressed and they don't have any choices and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And so one of the things that, you know, interests me about this project is the notion that there's there's these characters that are, you know, challenging um, what we would call the imperial imaginary, right? So there's this imagine, there's this imperial imaginary, right? To use Shohat and Stam's term, right? About Muslim women, Right. That they're just completely passive. Right. And they don't have any agency and they don't have any choices and they're made to wear this and they're made to do that. And one of the things I find really appealing about some of this new media is that they offer portrayals that are, you know, for the most most part being um, produced by Muslims. Right. Um, and they offer these portrayals that provide a counter narrative to the imperial and to the to the imperial narrative narrative. Right. So you have these portrayals that are about, you know, women or female characters that have that are all about agency and all about choice and all about power. Right. And so that's kind of why I'm interested um, in that project, because, you know, I spent, you know, the past seven years looking at, um, you know, looking at these, uh, these monsters and I'm kind of interested in looking at, you know, you know, some other, you know, some other characters. Now monsters certainly have a lot of agency, right. For the most part. (laughs) Um, But what, what interests me about uh, this project that I'm embarking on is that it offers just a different kind of, um, you know, a different interpretation or a different set of representations about Muslim women, right? Because we're kind of all kind of tired, I think, of the portrayals of Muslim women as having no no power, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of really interesting projects uh, coming out, and I look forward to encountering them as they become published. And thank you so much again, Sophia, for talking with us about your fascinating book. Thank you. My pleasure, Elliot. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Sophia Rose Arjena, visiting assistant professor of Islamic studies at Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado, about her wonderful new book, Muslims in the Western Imagination, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Thanks for listening.